Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The following is a presentation of the Four Center podcast feed. From the center of the galaxy, this is a Force Center podcast feed, and it's time for another edition of Star Wars Ranked. Me and a guest, a topic, five things apiece, and some lovely honorable mentions. And you know what? This week, we actually have a guest. I've had to do some of these solo recently, but not today, though this is about solo. <laughs> kind of directly and indirectly. One of the screenwriters of Solo, Jonathan Kasdan, last week put out a list, 52 or so points, I believe, of facts and behind-the-scenes little morsels and thoughts and opinions about the movie Solo Star Wars Stories in, in, in uh, celebration of the digital release. 
we talked about it on the main show. There were some little great things or some things that maybe some people had issues with, and we talked about it all. But Joseph and I, uh, for the most part, we really, not for the most part, we love this movie. And we really did like, for the most part, this list, and we wanted to talk about it, which is why my guest today is Joseph Scrimshaw. I am happy to be here, and rank in this list is so exciting on so many levels. I'm happy to dig into it. Yeah, there's a lot of little fun things and and, and behind-the-scenes stuff, which we, we love as fans, some of their thought processes into the moments, which doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree with all the thought process that, that got there, but but it's interesting to see how, how that came about. Uh, and also, as we talked about in the main show, uh, the most, to date, open credit to Lord Miller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is John Caston just from this very interesting perspective of, you know, this, he's one of the two screenwriters. He only has so much power. Uh, he was answering in the in the Twitter thread that mm. he was not. Nobody talked to him about doing a commentary, so right. he threw this out here. So it's interesting to get his, you know, from from in the machinery of this big company, this one person who's a part of the creative process, their take. And and it's and it's interesting to note, like, yeah, a one person indeed. And so a lot of things that still, you know, you might go, well, why, well, why, or you know, he is one cog in the wheel. It's a yeah. big wheel. But he's definitely, he was there. He was there. He contributed many of these ideas that excite us as Star Wars fans, and we get some great insights. Yeah, so he titles his 52 useless solo factoids and tidbits for anyone who's interested, and we are of the type who are definitely interested. (laughs) Yes. So Joseph and I have selected our five favorites, plus some honorable mentions. These are things that we gravitated to, liked, and uh, just kind of had fun exploring, and we're going to dive in, starting with Joseph's number five. My number five is number seven. <laughs> this is going to be real fun. My number five is number seven. Uh, here's uh, here's the text. The speeder chase went through many, many iterations and included some cool ideas that didn't fit in the movie. My favorite of these involved TIE fighter cockpits fresh off the assembly line and sans wings rolling around like giant bowling balls and Han and Moloch dodging them. I wish we'd kept that. Man, so uh, there's so much back and forth in this where he describes like big expensive scenes. And then also at the end has the really good point of like, I think we can make some uh, more affordable <laughs> Star Wars movies. This is one that just excited me. I was I read this and then I saw in the extras the uh, design concept of it. It's just a cool idea mm-hmm. to add a little make that chase a little bit bigger. But also I just it, it was an example to me how baked into uh, the DNA of this movie some of these ideas are because it's like. All right, it's a callback to a, a Star Wars thing we recognize, mm-hmm. but just that reminder that here Han is the son of a worker on Corellia, orphaned on Corellia because of the terrible economy that the Empire has created. And even when he's escaping, the bits and pieces of this machinery that the people of Corellia are forced to make mm-hmm. that kind of enslave them, he's still being attacked by rolling balls <laughs> of imperial tyranny. Like, it's a cool image, but then if you want to go deeper, it really yeah. is like, here he is literally caught in this sort of machinery of death that's going to come rolling at him <laughs> most of his life, you know, big chunks of his life. I love that. I love that take on it. I love the speeder chase scene and the behind-the-scenes doc we talked about in the main show this week. It, it made me appreciate it even more, what they put into it, and I love that moment. The concept art... Concept art is always great. It's as part of Star Wars tradition with Ralph yeah. McQuarrie, but and I have all the art of books, as I'm sure you do as well. I loved the concept art. It made me buy it right then and there. Like, how cool, just cool, because sometimes Star Wars just needs to be cool. Just looks cool, yeah. Uh, but the, yeah, the other meanings, the, the Empire kind of chasing him in a way through these balls mounting after him, these TIE Fighter balls, and also just the TIE Fighter itself. 
It is kind of a funny little ship. Yeah. You know, uh, do you hear one designer and the guy who designed, forget his name, designed the TIE Silencer, Kylo Ren's ship. And he's like, well, I want to make sure, like the TIE Interceptor, the wings, you know, I don't know how you, you don't have any peripheral vision when you're flying. <laughs> so yeah. they're just kind of silly little ships that we grew up with accepting. And so to see them in parts would have been fun. Yeah. Yeah, so that is my number five and number seven. Number five is number seven, which means my number five is number nine, number nine, <laughs> number nine. This is the Coronet Spaceport Morsel. Coronet Spaceport was a name we found on Wikipedia while looking for spaceports on Karelia. We wanted the sequence to feel like Ellis Island sequence in Godfather Part Two to give a sense of how small Han and Kara are in the scheme of things and the cruel and personal machine that is the Empire. A little bit what you were touching yeah. upon there, which is definitely we talk about that foot of the Empire. I love this one because in this world of Star Wars media discussion and podcasts, which we are wonderfully uh, grateful to be part of um, and entrenched in and uh, all these things about Star Wars, the fact that creators of Star Wars, particularly John Kasdan's on record, and he is a grew up a Star Wars nerd, right? Yeah. That they would be like, what do we need? Well, we have Leland Chi and uh, Kiri Hart and Carrie Beck and all these people in the story group. We could ask them, let's go to Wikipedia. <laughs> that is really true. That is a great... Uh, yeah, I, I just watched over me because, of course, John Kasdan looks and uh, Wikipedia yeah. just on weekends for fun. Yes. But the idea that he went there for a resource to add more to the Star Wars galaxy. And then I have this vision um, of in my head of, because they, they Lawrence Kasdan started to write the story well before, I think, the even the sale of Lucasfilm. This was on his mind, they right? They said three years of working on the script. Yeah, yeah, and we know Kathleen Kennedy's, at, hey, what do you want to work on? And he said, Han Solo. So this was always in, in good old, crusty Lawrence Kasdan's Star Wars brain, right? Yeah. The story of Han Solo. I love that at some point his son, says, well, we need a name. Dad, come here, let's go to Wikipedia. And I just imagine Lawrence Cadison going, well, what, what the hell is Wikipedia? <laughs> and him explaining that there's an entire wiki of Star Wars facts, and Lawrence Cadison's going, I don't care about that. <laughs> but then they find the name Coronet Spaceport. Yeah, I that love is that. awesome. So that is my number five. Pretty simple there. All right. Uh, number four. My number four is number 47. In many drafts of the script, emphasis number two was the mercenary Bosk who abandoned her at the end of the movie is he is truly a soldier of fortune. This was another thing I fought long and hard for, but was ultimately overruled. This is one of those details that I thought was so cool and so awesome of uh, Jonathan Kasdan to share because I'm glad he was overruled. Yes. It's such a great detail and such a great insight that clearly he has a love for Bosk. <laughs> he does. He got that Bosk figure sent to him for free at Christmas. Yeah. Uh, I had to go pay for mine. Yeah. Uh, but I love Bosk, mm. and uh, I'm so glad that they worked his name in to yeah. the movie. He even makes, in this very list, he makes a joke about Bosk later. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was really cool that he's like, let's get Bosk in there. Mm. But I also just feel like I'm not sure that would have worked because what works, what's so powerful about Enfys Nest is that all of these people are on the same page. We're in alliance. Yeah. So to have that sort of extra convolution of it's cool that Bosk is there, but then Bosk is just like in his hissing voice <laughs> from the Clone Wars, like, I'm in this for the money. <laughs> and leave. It's like, yeah, if the solo story was a, a television series and this was mm. and the Enfys Nest episode and this was a wrinkle and it would work. Uh, but to me, it was just cool to see this kind of insight of sharing, like, yep, there's those ideas that you love. Uh, as a Star Wars nerd, and he puts so many details in this movie that sing mm. for Star Wars nerds. And this is a detail where part of me is like, I want that too, and yet I don't, because it would be better without it. So 
I'm sl- I'm I'm happy you were overruled. I want to see Bosca get on the big screen, but happy you were overruled. Ultimately, it, great points. I think yeah, just on surface, yeah, yeah, we both love the character of Memphis Nest. It would have been one little wrinkle too much, and, yeah. and Han's already the one kind of going, not abandoning her, but just going like I, I'm not. I'm a, I want to be a soldier of fortune, you know. Yeah. So we already have that kind of beat. Then what do you do with Bosk? Do you do the voice? And then if you change the voice, then you got a cannon uproar. Yeah. I love those bounty hunters empire, right? I love them, but it is kind of weird to see them other than Boba Fett outside in the quote real world of star Wars. Yeah. It works overall. Even like I love IG 88 and the forces of destiny episode. It's kind of interesting, but it's also, it is to me always a little weird to see Bosk. Not, not weird in a bad way, but just weird to be like, hi, I'm Bosk. It's like, well, you would sound like that, but that's not, or Dengar with the, I am Dengar. It's a cool connection. <laughs> It's always a little weird. So to see it on the big screen would have been much. And I just, I think it's a, it's a good, the mention was enough. Yeah. And sometimes that's just enough. Uh, I think for LOM, the droid probably has a lisp, I think, is the, yes. the finding yeah. factor there. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah, I, it would be fine if Boss was in the background at Fort Ipso or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kind of introducing him in the big narrative. Uh, so I just thought that was a, a great detail to see both what uh, the things that could have been that a particular fan might want and a thing that's like, I kind of want that, but I'm kind of glad it wasn't there. Absolutely. Um, so then uh, my uh, number four <laughs> is my number five. Uh, that's uh, got to go back to it here. Um, all right. So in the early drafts of the scripts, there was no speeder chase. It's something uh, Lord Miller conceived. He calls them C- C&P, Chris and uh, Phil. Uh, C&P conceived and, and C&P and Ron Howard executed, in my opinion, beautifully. They all had felt we needed to see Hunt's skill behind the yoke. And they would pay off later in the Kessel Run. Lawrence Kasdan, much more focused on the Dickensian element, was more passionate about the foot chase and the deleted eel barrel scene, which is included in the extras. So we talked a, a lot about this in the, the uh, main show this past week, and you had some great points, Joseph, about, about um, you know, uh, Ron Howard. Is, is, is This was a lot of his, his movie. He wasn't just showing up and finishing the job. Yeah. He had some choices to make, and it seems like he's the one that really made some of the key choices in the speeder chase scene. I just like this this, this battle. I see where Lawrence Kasdan was going. And that eel scene's really good. I think it plays better on screen. The, it's good in the novel, Merle Lafferty's novel, but I, I, the chemistry, we talked about the chemistry between the actors is really good, and I like the eel scene. It just is a little too long. But I'm fascinated by this idea that Lawrence Kasdan was really focused on this little ragamuffin scrum rat beginning for Han Solo. Yeah. And if you didn't have the speeder chase, if that had happened, uh, this had played out that way, who would have... The speeder chase really, really adds to the story of Han and gives him that, like, you know, he's got these skills type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. It's a good point. Yeah, and I think it, it's very clear that they're both, uh, John and Lawrence Kasdan are both very writerly, but I think that's a, a great mm. uh, distinction, whereas John Kasdan is like, uh, well, it makes sense that Maul would be this guy, because that's what makes sense in Star Wars canon, and uh, Lawrence Kasdan's saying, like, well, what's Wikipedia? But then he's also like being his own kind of nerd of like, well, let's really do a great expectations moment, because of course, <laughs> uh, th- this was the industrialization of Britain, which produced these orphans in this crime, and the fact that the institution didn't do anything about the crime, and so that's exactly what's going on. Like, he's being a Dickens nerd. It's so, that is so wonderful you said that, because I, we joke, we joke, men in our 40s, right, yeah. or, or just any, any fan in your 40s, or you're older, you, you know, it doesn't matter age now, we all, we hang our posters, or hang our art, our Star Wars art, our yeah. Game of Thrones art, and we do this self-effacing, uh, you know, I'm still a kid. 
Well, really, no. That we're part of the generation that is our tales. Yeah. And I, my father, he likes this stuff, but you know, his his stuff was different, and and his interests were different, and so it would make sense that Lord's Casden is just a. Uh, he he wants to do uh you know uh you know a, 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 a movie based on what he grew up with but his podcast would be about this yeah it's <laughs> you know? great expe- expectations meets John Wayne yeah, that's what yeah. he loved yeah we do great expectations center yes <laughs> great point I hadn't even really even dove into that side of it there so perfect so that is my number four which means it worked to your number three my number three is number forty four this is long so I'm gonna kind of try to summarize it a little bit okay. while reading part of it. Some of Verminoth, the creature the Falcon encounters in the Maelstrom, had a long road to the screen. In the earliest drafts, the Kessel Run was interrupted with a forced pit stop on a spooky Ridley Scott-type planet on that nameless planet. Beckett's mm. crew encounters enormous Lovecraftian monsters that claim one of their number. Fascinating. Mm. Uh, when uh, C&P got involved, they determined correctly that the pit stop would kill the momentum of the Kessel Run. Later, when working on the sequence with Ron Howard, the notion of a Lovecraftian monster returned. And I remember uh, KK, Kathleen Kennedy would go into her office and Google image frilled sharks and giant squids <laughs> for reference. She loves that stuff. Uh, and then there's a, a spot here where he is recommending a short film uh, made by a director. And then uh, comes back to the name Sama Verminoth is another Cthulhu mythos homage to Robert Bloch's fictional tome. And this is Latin, which I don't know how to pronounce, De Vermi Mysteria. Mm. Uh, so there's so much in this. I just gravitated it towards it uh, because I like Lovecraftian. Yeah. Uh, big Lovecraft fan, uh, Cthulhu Mythos fan. Um, and I had thought the name Sama Verminoth was coming from an increasing uh, complexity of names mm. in Star Wars. When you like the, pick up the art of or the yeah. you know uh, visual dictionary, the names are getting more complicated. So I was like, why is that name so complicated instead of being a, it's a fout. Yeah. You know, it's now a sum of vermin. So it's cool to know that that was on purpose mm. by John Caston with a different kind of nerdery to call out to. <laughs> you know, it's it's a name like Nyarlathotep. It's one of the old ones of uh, Cthulhu mythos. That was a great detail. Um, learning that Kathleen, that picture of Kathleen Kennedy being oh, involved yeah. in that way of like, oh, we're thinking of like a shark, a shark <laughs> squid thing, but monstrous. Let me Google that. Yeah, I mean- that's really cool to see her involved. And then the final part of this that was uh, really cool to me, because I could go on and on about this one, there is uh, this cool synergy that he he could have taken a Lovecraft monster's name. Right. But So Lovecraft is writing pulps uh, for, you know, pennies a word. Nobody was paying attention. Mm. But he had all these other buddies. Robert Block was a younger writer falling, coming up behind Lovecraft and looked up to him. And they actively encouraged one another to drop references to one another's stories and kind of build this mythos together at a time when no one was paying attention to any of this. Lovecraft was never popular in his lifetime, but he had this younger kid, Robert Block, write him and go, hey, can I put this reference to your mythos in my story? So there is this, uh, it's an homage to another group of people who work together to create a shared mythos, mm. and then nerds could come along and discover these fascinating connections. And John Kazan seems like that level of nerd would be like, I could just name it a knockoff of Cthulhu, right. but that's too obvious. I want to celebrate this whole world. <laughs> 
that these writers created together. That's fascinating. Is yeah. it an early shared universe? Yeah. There's your franchise picture right there, kids. That's yeah. fascinating stuff. Yeah. And yes, the image of Kathleen Kennedy sitting there. Well, let me, okay, let me look this up. <laughs> yeah. Kathleen, don't go on the internet. Don't go on the internet. Um, <laughs> There's monsters great. there. Yeah. 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 And just all those details of like a, a planet they might have landed on oh, where yeah. they would have lost one of their numbers. Well, like they didn't have anyone functionally to lose at that point unless it was a completely different draft yeah with uh, maybe they take uh you know sagwa not that i want sagwa to die oh, attack they take Anthony Daniels. That, that would work yeah. that would work <laughs> yeah um and correct the correct choice to to not stop the kessel run should be a, a run in my head not yeah. an adventure and i love the idea um the monster which is i won't even attempt to say without it in front of me um, I, 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 I like it and watching it at home. I like it a little bit more than the movie theater. Maybe it's that Rathtar thing in my head, but again, seeing the, the special features and then hear what you're reading here to see, this is why I really like what Kasdan did. Um, to, to hear it described as Jules Verne, the ship going into the storm yeah. and what's out there. And there's some big squid creature or something like that. I was, I really, really, it, it, it I already am on board. But it made me appreciate it even more. Yeah. This castle run. That it isn't just what I thought growing up, a race. Because Parsec was time to me until <laughs> I realized George and me were wrong and I were wrong. Um, so to see that the castle run is something bigger. It is yeah. this mythological adventure and, and, and race. I yeah. like that a lot. And you can fill in if you want because you can see the sum of Vermonoth is just a, a big beast that wants to eat things. Mm-hmm. But the whole Lovecraft thing is the monsters are sentient. They just are right. totally different. They don't even understand what humans want. They're just like, what, we're going to come here and eat your souls. That's a problem for you? You're so <laughs> insignificant. I don't even understand what you're, you're taught. So it, it invites you also to imagine that that creature has a totally different existence. Yeah. You know, that it's maybe even related to something more like the Bendu that understands the galaxy in a different way in this strange storm. Or it can be a huge beast, and this invites more mysteries. Yeah, mystery and thought to it there. I like that a lot. So that was your number three? That was my number three, 44. My number three is number 36, (laughs) and it kind of is a tag with... 35. So in 35.35, Kazan says stuff that, hey, we try to look at the Kessel Heist as Mission Impossible. We kept watching Mission Impossible movies. But at the end of the day, Han's personality is very different from Ethan Hunt. He's much more uh, laid back and things tend to go best for him when he just sort of uh, BSs his way through. All right. So that's part 35. But 36, Kazan follows up and says, hey, to this point, both Lawrence Kazan and myself, our favorite Han Solo line is, we're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Both of us, that moment is what makes Han our favorite character in Star Wars. Parentheses, right behind Bosk. Um, There's the Bosk joke. And I really liked that take. There's a lot of things I love about the solo Star Wars story that are Han's, uh, it's like a thesis statement for his character. It, it, it Kira telling him he's a good guy is something that he's going to struggle with for 40 years. We've talked a lot about yeah. that on the shows. But to boil down this Han moment to that classic New Hope moment, it's, it's so Han... And you and I have talked about this, and, and we talked about it on our main show two weeks ago, right? The emotional canon. Yeah. And we're going to find a way to make that a four-center official <laughs> term. Yeah, we talked about it in the solo novel uh, yes. review. Yeah. The emotional canon that's going into these new Disney stories is why I, I do take umbrage to the anti-Disney movement. There's a lot of reasons, but this is one of the ones. you're not If you're not slowing down to pay attention to the emotional canon going on, it's all there. Yeah. And I really was... Uh, moved in a way like you're so right 
That is Han in a nutshell. We go to I know in Empire. That's a great, that's a Han moment for sure. It's a Harrison moment. We know the urban legend. That is what Han, but I love that in the middle of all this, they're running around the Death Star. They have a kind of a plan. Han tries to do a plan. I'm going to pretend to be a stormtrooper. I used to be one of you anyways. Uh, boom. We look, we got company. Yeah. He doesn't care. They're going to deal with the next thing. That is Han, and the emotional cannon is running throughout these stories. Absolutely. And they talk about how Han is not always great with his words, so he's trying to... <laughs> yeah. He always improvises. He's trying to bullshit, and uh, in that one of the things that makes that scene that moment so funny is when he grimaces, knowing that that's serious. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm Ralph. I'm here. How are you? <laughs> He's got that really funny wince. And the, yeah, you're right. It's, you can totally see as much as his character is growing and changing over the years. We see him. That's him right there. Yep. Cocky, but also totally honest when he knows he's in trouble. Yeah, and, and look at we see it again on Savarine. I got thirty hired guns. Yeah, no, go ahead and do, do your do, do your thing. Do your thing. <laughs> yeah, Love the, he scrapes the Carbonberg. That's on me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Love that. Stuff. Yeah, that is absolutely great stuff and great to see. Also, Lawrence Kasdan could absolutely, and his son by extension, be like. Uh, remember all the amazing iconic console lines I wrote. Mm. Lawrence didn't write that one. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that's honestly like. I saw this character and then I added to him yeah. and I want to keep adding to him. And that's why this movie exists because I want to feel that feeling again. I want those moments. Great point. Great point. So that's my number three, which means we're up to your number two. My number two is 29. The scene where Han and Lando discussed their parents was in part inspired by Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, Born to Run, which I can't recommend enough. <laughs> Since so many characters in Star Wars are orphans or the product of some great tragedy, we wanted the story of Han's parentage to hint at something more complex and less romantic. His father led a working-class life full of disappointment, and he had a complicated, difficult relationship with his son. Han eventually ran away from that relationship. I like to think Han's father was still out there somewhere drinking himself to death. Hmm. First, I just love that it, it almost seems like there is a uh, challenge. How many different references uh, mm. can you make <laughs> across all everything from Wikipedia to Godfather 2 to Bruce Springsteen's autobiography? Like that, it's, it's honest. We all get our inspirations lots of different places. Yeah. Um, but I think what I really liked about this is uh, the confirmation that they were really thinking about the impact of mm. What does it mean that Corellia uh, was a proud shipbuilding place where people mm. worked hard and made a decent living? Yeah. And then the Empire said, why don't you do that for us and we'll pay you less mm. and we will break you all. Mm. And we'll break all of this. And how does this radiate out to the children? I, I like the confirmation that they were thinking about these big themes and these Dickensian themes. Yeah. Um, and then I like that everybody across the board seems to have made the choice at Lucasfilm of like, that it's this real mystery of what exactly happened between Han and his father. There are implications made in Most Wanted. Mm -hmm. There are different implications made in the solo novel where mm, he says yeah. his father abandoned him. This is John Kasdan's personal take that Han mm. chose to run away from a difficult, maybe alcoholic mm -hmm. father. So I love that uh, as much as we learned more about Han, there's still that oh, yeah. that mystery of we'll we'll never really know except for now we know that it was definitely a little bit more of the sort of the the bittersweet the pride and the pain of doing really hard work and, mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. being rewarded for it and the cycle of trauma yeah. that comes from that. 
Great point. Uh, first of all, I was I read this quickly the first time it came out, and I just thought it was referring to the song "Born to Run," and I, I was confused. <laughs> but then, yes, the autobiography. Um, there's so much there, and Solo Star Wars Story isn't just a checklist of Han origin moments. There's some of that. Yeah, the DL44, blah blah blah. If you if you want to get hung up on that, that's that's great. Uh, you know, I feel sorry for you though, because this is some of the depth there. I like too that I don't get the sense that Han hates his father. You know, I, yeah. he, he don't get along. But even then, when he's on board that Falcon, that cock, oh, this is a white T thirteen hundred. So good. There's some pride in a way. There's some connection. Yes, he doesn't want anything to do with his family. Yes, he has no people. But that you can have both. You can have both. Family is a tough situation, and uh, we've all got some of those tough situations in our, in our life where you might distance yourself, but it's still there. Yeah. And so I think it all is is at play there, and and shows that again there was they took time for these moments when creating these moments. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's uh, awesome to see that connection to that uh, Corellian uh, history and the importance of that ship and the importance of that culture. I think it's all great stuff. Yeah. Oh, the excellent take. Yeah. Excellent take on the empire. Uh, and what the, what the empire we, we talked about before the empire is a villain in this movie. It's yeah. very present. <laughs> it's very present. Yeah. And also just the weight of what it might mean for his name, mm. the whole, the discussion of solo getting his name, because is it, if, if you go with John Caston's interpretation here, mm-hmm. he has a name, yeah. but John Caston's take is Han chose to run away. So he has a name, but he rejects it. Mm. Yep. Is, you know, and I like that it's not canon. We don't know. And you can play around with these different ideas. Yeah. I like that a lot, too. That is your number two. Baby, we were born to run. <laughs> My number two is, let me double check. It is number 49. Ah, Beckett's betrayal. So he says, whether or not you were surprised by Beckett's betrayal had a thematic inevitability to it. This moment was meant to rhyme with the moment in A New Hope when Han returns and saves Luke during the assault on the Death Star. In both movies, the older, cynical character reluctantly reluctantly departs and then suddenly returns. With Beckett, it's a betrayal. With Han, it reveals his heroic nature. Love this. I have a a lot of thoughts on Beckett's betrayal in the movie because it's one of the critiques we hear. Ah, it's not a surprise. He even told Han, uh, don't trust anybody. So we knew he was going to walk through that door. And it's played... I understand there's this beat where the door opens. You don't see anyone. Suspense, The music swells, and he walks in. So I understand if you're watching that, uh, it might feel like, well, of course we saw that coming. I just feel that's part of the story. We're so used to big surprises. We're so used to the cliffhangers and going, what? It's Tak? He did it? Sagwa came back? (laughs) We don't want that. BBDB. Yeah, BBDB. Yeah. (laughs) We don't always need that. Sometimes it is the character's journey. And so I like when Becca comes back because then I think the true plot point is Han playing him. Yeah. That's the surprise is... Beckett is played by Han, not 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 the other way around. And I think that is key. And then to see, again, that, that poetry, we make fun of it. We don't make fun. We, we tease hey, the Star Wars poetry. But it's there. It's emotional canon. Han probably now, we can imagine, took the money, said, may the force be with you, kid, and flew away with Chewie. And I got to imagine now there's a conversation where Chewie said, remember when this happened, when this was us? Yeah. Remember when Enfys Nest asked you to be part of this? Yes. And now 
there's that conversation when Han says, maybe he doesn't say, Chewie, you're right, but maybe he just turns the ship around. I think he says, eh. <laughs> you talked about it in, in the deleted scene of Han crashing the, the fighter. It's revealed, really, he did that to save somebody, but he kind of overlooks it. Han is the good guy who wants to be the bad guy. Yeah. So this, all of it ties to him learning a lesson, and now he doesn't want to be Beckett dead on the side of a hill with his shoes on. He doesn't want to be that. He wants yeah. to be something else. So Han is Han, but Han has changed. And I think that, I really do think this is a powerful moment. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like he is doubling down on his philosophy. Like, Beckett's philosophy is you can never trust anyone. Han used that in this situation. Right. Got the absolute confirmation that, yep, that's Beckett's philosophy. And Han has this other philosophy of, like, uh, if you pick some, like it said in that in the solo novel, if you pick someone up, they'll owe you one. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. so in that moment, uh, in a new hope, he is still uh, following his mantra that mm-hmm. he would probably teach someone. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's out for himself, but if somebody stumbles, he'll go back for him because you never know when it'll yeah. come in handy. And yeah, it's really cool to see that all play out. Mm, I like that. I like it. There's a lot there in this movie. Uh, so that's my number two. So we're going to do some quick honorable mentions. Okay, cool, cool, yeah. One. I'll just rattle off some uh, here, and then we'll, we'll go to yours, and then we'll come back to my last one because it might be a discussion point here. Uh, 46, I uh, like 45, uh, the script, the area Savarine, where the refinery is located. Uh, um, another Lovecraft nod, by the way. Uh, what does he call As the Panoptic Dunes? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, it's been a while for me on okay. that one. Um, Panoptic, I think I can't. Where they shot it was incredibly remote and punishing location. Long story short, uh, Neil Lamont's uh, set and, and the hundreds of costume extras. At one point, Kasdan thought, you really thought you were in another galaxy just looking at this. Yeah. And that speaks to a lot of the practical stuff we've learned. Bradford Young's, uh, the way he shot this stuff, really liked that moment. And then the, the next one, number 46, Aaron Kellyman, was the discovery of Nina Gold and Lord Miller uh, that exceeded our wildest hopes for Infus Nest. She's a face made for the movies. Uh, she's currently shooting a new version of Les Miserables as he writes mm. this personally love to see more of Emphis Nest. That, I, I just more and more really love the character of Emphis Nest. I know we didn't get enough yet. Yeah. Uh, I love that uh, she's labeled as 16 in the book, forced to fight. Her mother clearly died. Whether or not that child in the movie is her daughter, I take it as such. Yeah. Um, it's just a harsh life they live out there. And I just love, to me, she is part of the though the new emerging face of the rebellion that is more realistic to me than the one I thought of growing up, which is just, just some people decided to, ah, we'll fight the bad guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's different. It's, it, it's more realistic and I love their take on it. So that's yeah. Honorable mentions for me. Those, those are great. Uh, for me, uh, number 40, which was that, that stack of star Wars comics <laughs> yeah. inspired, uh, just needing to see Han and Lando in front of the Falcon together, blasting away like that. Yes. That's so evocative of those kind of comics. Uh, number 34, uh, is Kira's made up job title, assistant to the vice admiral <laughs> of trade route allocation and monetization, a good natured poke at some of the more confusing exposition in previous Star Wars adventures. So that, that was nice. I, she had read it off fast, fast. I hadn't really picked up that she says some of the key words of the beginning of Fandom Menace. Uh, so, you know, um, it, I had read this list and then had rewatched the movie after. Amelia plays that so well. I didn't, I thought she just rattled it off the first few times I saw. She is like, the the uh, and the thing yep. <laughs> and monetization yeah yeah so that, that's it's a fun little poking fun mm-hmm. at the criticisms of Phantom Menace mm-hmm. uh, being starting out with not sounding exciting because it was all right. vice admirals and uh, and trade disputes 
Um, and then my last uh, one, this is just an exciting visual. One of the mo- things I love so much about the movie is how just pulpy and adventury it is. I love this description that Dryden Voss's base was originally going to be an island fortress with like a castle on an island with an elaborate system of canals. And in the third act, Lando drove a Star Wars version of a go-fast boat through the canals. <laughs> it just made me origi- just immediately go like, I want to see that. That's so yeah. pulpy. That's so like... Solo has a little bit of everything. That almost sounds like James Bond. And it's just like, yeah, it throw does. some James Bond in there, too. So, That's fascinating. Yeah, those are my... I, I could go on and on, yeah. uh, but I'm going to keep it shorter. Yeah, and then my final one here, and I think it's a great discussion point. So I, I gravitated to it just because I, I think I took it a different way, but I understand um, there was some pushback on Kazan on this, and this is his number four point that he says, uh, of course Han at some point told Leia about uh, using the fake thermal detonator uh, to get out of Lady Proxima's lair, and then this would lead to her... Um, I'm trying to get it up here because... Uh, and and gave Leia the idea to pull a real thermal detonator out when disguised as a bounty hunter Bausch in Jabba's palace in front of the Jedi. For anyone who feels that maybe they don't need to be explained, are you crazy? It had to be explained. So I went to a my mind went to a different spot, but uh, there was some pushback in Kasdan on this, right? Uh, yeah, just because it, it takes away a little bit of Leia's agency. That's mm-hmm. a cool idea. It's yeah. also one that makes perfect sense. She's pretending to be a bounty hunter in a rough and tumble place. Mm. It's a way for her to sell her cover. And I think we've just, as fans, lived with it for years. Right. It's a cool idea that Leia came up with. And I think whether it's intentional or not to say, uh, it, but she got this cool idea because her, you know, fella Han told her. Right. It, it removes some agency from Leia is the way some people feel. That's, that's the way I feel. Yeah. Um, but then it's also, you, you know, I talked about Jonathan Kasdan as the, the ultimate Star Wars nerd. He makes all these w- wonderful connections that make me love the movie. And then every once in a while, for me, it's like, nah, that's too much. Yeah, yeah. And that's been, uh, I remember you and I were talking right after the movie came out. And when some people were like, oh, we don't need all these nods. Mm. I specifically thought, and I was wrong, mm. that this wasn't a nod. Right, because right. to me, a thermal detonator is a grenade. That's right, just right, right. some world building. Mm. And uh, you do a couple things with grenades. You throw them at people or you threaten people with them. (laughs) And so every time somebody threatens somebody with a grenade in Star Wars, it Mm. doesn't need to me to be a callback. It's just world building. Yeah. That's our grenades. Not every time a grenade is used in a movie is a reference to another movie that's used a grenade. Right. And I was kind of hung up on that point. So... So for for Kazan to say, like, nope, I specifically meant it is a connection. Is like, eh, that's not for me. You know, we're all different as Star Wars fans, and for me, eh. Yeah, I, I, I and seeing it in that light, first in terms of the Leia one, yeah, of course, I, I love the idea of, of my general, my princess, making those kind of decisions on her own. That's why I love her on Hoth so much, because yeah. she's going to go down with the ship. She's a great leader, much like her mother before. So, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't, I have to admit, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it thought about in those terms. I, I still like the moment in the movie. It was maybe a joke too far but i but i loved your version of to hear oh yeah yeah you're right this is what they just call them yeah. so uh it would make sense to me but i went i'll tell you where i went i'll be honest with you where i went i just had this weird thought of them they weren't quite dating because it was it would have to be during or before the events of cloud city yeah um that han bragging about his past in a weird way and just talking about an ex-girlfriend essentially <laughs> and just this <laughs> Yeah, so me and this girl were going, and I, t- I pretended to just uh, lay a 
kind of taken a note of it, like, okay, you know, maybe. And then she would, you know, bring it into her bag of tricks later on. But so that's where I went to it. I just thought it was this fun little, like, again, much like I imagined this deep conversation of, of Chewie and Han talking about the past and going back to save Luke. Yeah. Just this other conversation of dumb Han being like, yeah, let me tell you. Yeah, let me tell you this. It just was a weird note. For yeah, me. and I have to say, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective either. And I do love that idea of Han either out of bravado or vulnerability, just constantly telling Leia weird, dumb, cool <laughs> things he did. I love that interconnectedness. I think it just takes us on this this meta relationship since we've yeah. lived with Leia's cool move culturally yeah. since 1983. Uh, but your perspective, I, I love that idea of Han telling Leia <laughs> all sorts of cr- fun, crazy, maybe vulnerable stuff. Partially about like, yeah, Kira, don't worry about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, only maybe because I've I've done that too many times and it's and it's bitten me before. <laughs> <laughs> Stories about your ex. So yep. those are honorable mentions. Uh, there's a lot on this list, but we are going to get to our number one. So I uh, will go with my number one, so the guests can close the show. My number one is number forty-one, uh, where he writes quite bluntly: "Does this movie work? I'm not the person to ask. But here's what I think does work: the moment when Han jumps into the pilot seat of the Falcon for the first time. It's directed beautifully. Alden nails every moment and look. And unless you're actively resisting it, John Powell's John Powell's perfect cue will make your heart swell. The moment is as good as this movie gets, in my opinion. And I really, there's some things that, and I don't, I don't mean to be aggressive and confrontational, but I think there's a lot about this movie that if you Want, if you, you have to kind of actively resist a lot of this movie. I am not saying that everyone has to like this. This might be lower ranked than me of the new Disney's, right? I don't like ranking the movies too much, but this might be for other reasons. But the more and more I watch this, there's so much joy in this movie. There's so many moments where as just a Star Wars fan and someone who loves the, the character of Han Solo, I think Alden does so many wonderful things. And the look, I was talking about the last moment with Impus Nest, where she's, you know, maybe you'll think again sometime. You think mm. about it differently. He gives this look, this, and he does this little cheek thing. It's so Han Solo. Yeah, it's so Han Solo. So I love the moment. I my favorite moment, Han and Chewie is the the jump to light speed later on with themselves. There's just something really sweet about them hands on it, yeah. launching to a lifetime of adventures. But I I watched uh, the Kessel Run again when he jumps in and Chewie takes over for Kira, and I actually like that moment where they they haven't suspected that Chewie could be the co-pilot. Yeah. There's a great moment, and there was uh, applause breaks in the times I saw it in the theater, and it, and it resonates for me. And I really agree with what John's saying here. It, it, it gets so good there, and it, it makes your heart swell. And all right, maybe you don't like all the movie, but that moment itself, don't actively resist that moment. This yeah. is a great Star Wars moment. I'm right there with you and with John Kasdan. That, that the, the way he leaps into the seat and takes just a half a beat mm. to appreciate. It in the, he's in the middle of fighting for his life and for everybody on that ship, but he takes that second to take it in mm. and then kind of take that little breath and then he's and then he's in there. Then he's racing, making daring choices, being Han Solo, yeah. and the music is right there saying like, "This is what it means in the moment, but this is also what it means for Han Solo. This is what it means for your relationship <laughs> with Han Solo over all the years of being a fan of Star Wars." It it just sings, yeah. Love it. So that is my number one, which means the show is about to close with Joseph's number one favorite thing from John Kasdan's list of 52 factoids and tidbits about Solo, a Star Wars story. 
My number one is number 50. Kira's betrayal slash departure was also in the DNA of Solo from the very beginning. She was always intended to be more complicated and ambiguous than Han, at least in this point in their lives. This was a tricky thing to pull off as you're constantly weighing how invested you want the audience to be in that relationship with properly setting up the choice she makes in the end. Again, this was always intended to be just the first and second acts of their story. The third act, the resolution of Han and Kira, has yet to be told. Ooh, oh, baby. I love oh, so much of this. So much what I love about the movie is Kira. And again, this is a nice date confirmation from the creators of what their intention was mm. that they saw that she, uh, on the surface, is functionally a femme fatale. Mm. In the kind of the reference to noir, all the genre reference they're doing, there's definitely this noir aspect mm. of uh, she's the woman who walks into Philip Marlowe's office, giving him assignment, but there's trouble. Yeah. She's <laughs> trouble. All that kind of stuff. But they were also really well aware that we're playing with those tropes, but that's not what this is. Yeah. This is not a cardboard femme fatale. She's meant to be a contrast to Han. Mm-hmm. She's more mature. She's a planner. She's more complicated and still figuring her things out. And, you know, the great charm of the movie is Han is always like, I don't know, I'll figure it out. And yeah. I got youthful optimism. I haven't been beaten down by life, but but Kira has. Mm-hmm. And you see that great contrast and that sings. And to know that they intended that fully and that Ron Howard got in there, whatever else happened, that for me, the whole team ultimately brought that to the surface for the movie mm. is uh, really, really great. I also like that he says betrayal slash departure. Mm. Because it invites you to think about, is it a betrayal? She kind of told Han the whole time, this isn't going to happen. And then she tells him for just a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's most, but it's for his benefit. It's for him to go be with Chewie, which she thinks is best for both of them. It's so she can save him from Maul. Mm. So -hmm. is it really a betrayal or is it a sacrifice from Kira? I think it's a sacrifice. Yeah. 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 So I love that, that Kazan doesn't just say her betrayal. Yeah. Her betrayal slash departure. Yeah. And then, of course, the biggest thing for me that I wanted to end on, love the idea that, yes, this is not their whole story. It is not her whole story. This is Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Jonathan Kasdan knows Star Wars. And if somebody who spends their time looking up stuff on Wikipedia knows anything, mm-hmm. once you're in the Star Wars story, your story's not done. Yeah. And not only that he wants to make more, but that's a part of this journey. When you watch this movie and you react to this character... It's just the beginning of her adventure. So, so well said. And even if it's just, uh, you know, if Jonathan Kasdan wants to come on Force Center and just tell the third act of their story, well, that'll <laughs> He's count. welcome. Yeah, no, there's a lot, a lot, lot with this Kira character that, that has been unraveled. Uh, it's been unraveling as uh, the stories have gone. What you say, Joseph, is so right. You're in, once you're in Star Wars, you, there's still stories to tell. If you yeah, you're in this life for good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a lot of credit. I, I look at it. We've talked about uh, Ray Carson's Most Wanted. Does mm-hmm. a great job setting up Kira um, and seeing things from the point of I, One of my little descriptions of Kira, when she gets kind of the fancy clothes that I think is her action figure now. You can get the Black Series of young Kira, right? When she gets it, and, and it's her first kind of like clean clothes, yeah. fancy clothes, and she feels, you know, uh, feminine in a way, for, and how she revels in that. To have Ray Carson write that, it was really powerful stuff. So there's stuff, and, and then Mer Lafferty's take on yeah. her in the novel. So to see that it was there, uh, it's a powerful ending. It's a layered ending. A lot of that final stuff is where we're trying to second guess so much. You know, who's going to betray Ned Stark next type of thing? <laughs> and that's great. 
And that's great. I love modern storytelling. I love all that stuff. And I want dark, gritty stuff. Yeah. But it's about these characters' journeys and what's still to come. Oh, give me more. Yeah. Give me more. Well, that's uh, all the time we have. (laughs) We could talk more and more. Yeah, we could have done a whole breakdown of the entire list, but I'm glad we did it this way. We're picking out what (laughs) sings to us, you know, because I'm sure all the other points will come up across all of our podcasts. Yeah, they will. And you can listen to all of our podcasts. This is Star Wars Ranked, where today we ranked a rank, (laughs) got meta. And had a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, hey, thanks to Jonathan Kasdan for sharing this and, and uh, including the foibles, including, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's good to start discussions. And sometimes that's how you move forward and learn on some particular issues. Yeah, I really want to second that. And thanks yeah. again. I know I have a couple criticisms, yeah. uh, really two of them. Um, mm-hmm. But it is really cool of him to share all this insight and to see uh, how much thought and love everybody put into this movie, but how much thought and love he put into this movie and this whole underworld that he's got us Mm. all so excited about what could be next. Just a huge uh, thank you and appreciation to him. Absolutely. So you can listen to Force Center on all of our uh, programming. We got Tuesday, the main show, Thursday, Databank Brawl, Star Wars Counseling, Spotlight Star Wars, Happy Beeps, uh, Force Center Meets, Force Center Reacts, Force Center Reads. If you are new (laughs) to Force Center, we got a lot going on. You can follow us on Twitter at Force Center Pod. We got Instagram. We got a YouTube channel where we put our Databank Brawls up, our in-memoriams from Spotlight Star Wars, and more, including our Last Jedi commentary. And speaking of commentary, Commentaries, Joseph, even though uh, I host this show, uh, I want you to help me close it out. Uh, on Patreon, we want to do more commentaries, and that's where we're building. That's right. Uh, uh, Patreon.com slash Force Center. We want to get to our goal of doing commentary for all the movies, including Solo, so you can hear us react. You can see our faces light up with joy when Han Solo jumps into that pilot seat of the Millennium Falcon. Absolutely. Uh, so go follow us there on Patreon if you want. And other than that, the best way to support is listen, share, like, review, all those wonderful things. That is it. I'm going to go watch Solo again. Star Wars has been ranked. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.